0: If you return with me, please, Uh, we're in Psalm 85, this is my, I think my second sermon of the year, not in John's gospel, I'm missing it, Uh, but I'm excited to get into this, this morning. Nine and a half years ago, I became a Christian, and nine years ago, I was baptized, and nine years ago, uh, I met a, a wonderful young lady by the name of Victoria Wright, who is now my wonderful wife. I came to the Lord nine and a half years ago in an overnight prayer meeting in Kitwe Evangelical Church in Zambia. It is a very long story as to how that happened, so I won't go into it, but it was the most wonderful six months of my life as an 18-year-old. It was the most wonderful time in which the Lord had, had, had through his word, convicted me of my sin, transformed my life through the gospel of the Lord Jesus, was baptized, was um, baptized, And the Victoria bit was, I won't call you an add-on, because that's maybe a bit disrespectful, but you're wonderful. Anyway. Um, And I look back at that time with wonderful thankfulness and fondness. And when I look back to that, I want to praise God. And I want to thank Him for the grace and the mercy in saving me, and for all that He has done for me. And I wonder if I ask you to pause for a moment this morning and reflect for just a moment on those times when you have seen the Lord at work in your life. I wonder if there are key moments in your life you reflect on that you are so thankful to the Lord God for. Maybe it was when you came to faith. Maybe it was when you were baptized. Maybe it was encouragement from a godly family member or from a friend. Maybe it was a family member or a friend giving their life to Christ. Maybe you knew the unshakable and the undoubtable peace of God in a trial of life. We start here this morning with a psalmist who is reflecting on what God has done for the people of Israel. Israel. So let us read then Psalm 85. It is entitled, Revive Us Again. To the choir master, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation towards us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints, but let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those whom fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground, and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good, and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps a way. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Let us just come before him in prayer. God, we thank you for your living and your breathing word. Would you clearly and simply as you do speak to our hearts this morning? Would the words not be mine? But Lord, would you speak through me? Would we not hear my words but yours? And Lord, would you move amongst us, we pray. Amen. We most likely find ourselves here in in a time of, Continued waiting and uncertainty. This is most likely in response to returning people from the Babylonian exile. And and God is in the process of restoring this this ashamed people. Again. And and the psalmist begins. They open up here by reflecting on the promises. And the restoration and the national forgiveness that, that, that God has given in the past. This psalm is a prayer, and it's a prayer for favor and for for the saving work of God. It is a prayer, a crying out to God, would you repeat what you have done before? I know there's a lot of R's in that, but there's something I quite like about alliteration. So restoration and revival is where we're going to focus, but all four of these fit, I think, beautifully into this psalm. So firstly, I want to look at remembrance and restoration in verse 4. We'll jump straight into the next one. Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Restore us again, O God of of our salvation, and put away your indignation towards us. We start this psalm with the Lord in his rightful place. We start this psalm with this recognition that all that has been done for the people of Israel is, is a blessing from God. It is a recognition that they need God. It's a recognition that of everything, positive of everything good that has happened in and amongst them is from God. There has been restoration and, and forgiveness in Israel because God was favorable, because he restored, because he forgave his people, because he covered their sin, because he withdrew his wrath. It's all about God. And I think that's where we start this. We start this straight away with this, with this picture of putting God exactly where he should be. And it's a stunning picture, I think, of the sovereignty of God. These actions of God weren't caused by man, but this is God in work, in action. As we remember as we remember the wonderful times in our lives when God has been at work, here the psalmist remembers God's work in his people, and they ask for more. They use it as this basis of prayer and ask, God, would you restore us again? The Lord told the Israelites back when they were wandering in the desert after being rescued from Egypt to be careful and remember all that the Lord had done for them. They were about to enter the promised land. God knew it would be easy for them to forget the God who had delivered them out of slavery, who had presented them and preserved them in the wilderness, and who brought them into this promised land. We read in Deuteronomy 6, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. David in Psalm 77 tells us to remember the deeds of the Lord. And of course, we find remembrance, don't we, in Luke chapter 2 from the Lord Jesus himself. Do this. Come, gather, break bread together. Do this in remembrance of me. Remember. Remember what God has done, both in the Scriptures throughout all of redemptive history, but also what God has done in our own lives. I think it's really important for us to regularly remind ourselves of what the Lord has done in our lives and for what we've seen him do in the lives of others because we're forgetful. And I think when we get forgetful, we begin to complain. And we begin to look at our lives and we feel that God is is maybe just not being fair. Maybe he's just not hearing my prayers. And I think this can lead us to pity. I think this can lead us to anger towards God. I think it can lead us towards jealousy of other people. And I think forgetting the the, the wonderful works of God in our lives, I think, make us feel entitled. That somehow we deserve the grace and the mercy that the Lord bestows upon us. We're forgetful. I am. But forgetfulness in us can cause jealousy of God's work in the lives of others when really we are told to rejoice. In remembering God's works, both in the scriptures and in our life, we're strengthened in our faith. And in this... this the, the, the strength and faith that constantly remembers all that God has done it, it is a life and a heart that, that exudes praise in response to all that God has done. I think prayer flows more freely, doesn't it? Don't we pray more when we have a better understanding, when, when it's in the top of our minds more and more of what God has done and how he's acted? You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned your hot anger. Restore us again, O Lord, of our salvation and put away your indignation towards us. He restores, he forgives, he covers sin, he withdraws his wrath. He restores. We read in Jeremiah thirty eighteen. Thus says the Lord: Behold, I will restore the fortunes of the tents of Jacob, and have compassion on his dwellings. The city shall be rebuilt on its mound, and the palace shall stand where it used to be. You see, as we join in th- th- this th- this place in Jeremiah, we just find this utterly bleak outlook for God's people. That that we we go through this journey of just such sleep's steep spiritual decline in His people. The Lord was going to exile them and send them out of their nation. Many would die, and life would not be the same for these people. Not even repentance would keep them in that land. But it's at that lowest point we read of these words, I will restore. And amongst the completely justifiable wrath of God for his people's constant rebellion God declares through the prophet I will restore because I'm compassionate. I will restore the fortunes of Jacob. God was favorable, Israel was restored, why because God was favorable and compassionate. Let's consider for a moment the the, the, the working of The restorative work of God and what it means. We know that the Lord despises sin. We know that the Lord despises all that is not of him. That God despises all of Satan's works that separate us from him. And we know, or if you don't know, you do now know, that there is no way in which you can restore yourself to God. It is not possible. It is not feasible. You are not good enough and you will never be good enough. But the only way restoration for you to God is possible is if there was an infinite and merciful God that did it. If there was this infinite and this merciful God that restored us to how it was in the beginning, how it was meant to be in union and communion with God. And lo and behold, we come to this God of restoration. This God that restores his people and this God that can restore us. I think our understanding of restoration is often a poor imitation of God's. We live in a world that says, I will will forgive, but I will not forget. When we feel others transgress us, we'll often never allow for full restoration or reconciliation. We might forgive for our own benefit of clearing our own minds. But do we view restoration as God views restoration? Because we hear something very different in Isaiah 43. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. God doesn't forget our sins because he is incapable of remembering. But God chooses no longer to to, to hold on to that, to, to, to reflect on that, to look at that for his own sake. He does it because it pleases his own plans and purposes. And from the beginning, God's people have rebelled time and time and time and time again. And they paid a price for that but we get this glimpse in this psalm. We get this focus in this psalm of this faithful God that favors his people and is compassionate and restoring. I wonder, does our view of restoration and what it looks like to restore others. I'd say often our view falls well short of that of God. But this is where we start. And we move from this remembering We move from this reflection to basically this plea of God, please would you do this again? God, please would you revive us? Verses five to eight. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints, but let them not turn back to folly. We, we read this, this, this Old Testament, and it is just one up and down after another. And then we turn to the New Testament post-Jesus, and we think everything surely is now much better for people, and there's now no doubting, and surely everything's wonderful. But we see that within 40 years or so, we already have glimpses of churches that are in need of being revived. You see, in the history history of the church, this word revival in its most biblical sense has meant the sovereign work of God that that, that is in a region of churches. Historically, our nation has been greatly blessed by them. Many people coming to, to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, through the proclamation of the Word by His Spirit. Lord, would you revive us again, so that we might rejoice? You see, that, that, that's the pattern here, is that a, a revived soul is a joyful soul. And, and, a, and a revived soul that rejoices in our God is a soul that is remarkably different to those that are without God. For a revived soul is lifted out of this world of spiritual indifference, of this world of Jesus, yes, sure, but whatever, is lifted out of this worldliness into a conviction of sin that earnestly desires for more and more of Jesus, more of his words, a hunger to be bold and witness, a desire to live a pure and a holy life. That is the result of a soul that knows Jesus, of a revived soul. Our nation has such a wonderful history of revival, <clears throat> and we do well to pay attention to it. But in 1859 into the 60s, Scotland saw one of its greatest revival, and it's reckoned one in ten came to saving faith in the Lord Jesus. It came from, I think, New York through Ireland. I think it started in salt coats in Scotland, and I'm sure lots of wonderful things start in salt coats, um, and then spread throughout the nation. But these words of the uh, Reverend John Milne of Perth in 1860, he said this, After nearly two years of prayer and waiting, the Lord has visited us in unexampled mercy. At the close of the meeting on the second night, the city hall presented a scene never before witnessed on such a scale in Perth. It was like a battlefield, a harvest field. Hundreds were seeking the Lord or rejoicing that they had found him. Blessed be God for such a season. Or if we take the words of T.T. Matthews, who was a missionary in Madagascar, 50 years later, reflecting on this, he says this, it was the most stupendous movement that the country had seen since the days of the Covenanters. Scotland had said to be preemptively a land of revivals, but it may be doubted if even Scotland had a revival of greater depth, of one that shook the country more from its center to its circumference than the revival Of 59 and 60s. For it was a very great deal more than mere outward reform and conduct of conduct and manners. It was a marvelous visitation of the Spirit of God. Oh, to see. Oh, to see, marvelous visitation of the Spirit of God in our churches and in our nation. Lord, would you open the eyes of our hearts, the eyes of our nation, to the good news of the Lord Jesus. You see, it is God alone who can revive a rebellious and backslidden soul. It is God alone who can revive the downtrodden, the broken, the hurting, and the sinful. And I wonder this morning if in your soul what you know is a spiritual indifference. If you know that there is a sinfulness that marks your soul, that there is a lack of motivation on your part for the ways of the Lord Jesus. If at this point in your life you don't hunger and you don't thirst for him like in ways in the past you have, that you know there is a draw from the things of these world, from this world that you know is winning. Revival brings joy. And those who are revived don't just rejoice because of the new life that there is in Christ, but they rejoice in the Lord who is the author of it. So here is the simple question. Does the joy of the Lord mark your life? Is your spiritual condition, your thoughts, your actions, your words, are they marked as a person who is so in love with Jesus, whose soul is so focused on the author of our salvation that your life overflows with rejoicing? Does your soul cry out, Lord, make me more like you? Lord, would you draw me nearer and nearer that I might die more and more to myself and live more and more like you? It is so easy to lose our focus on Jesus, isn't it? It is so easy for us to get distracted. It is so easy for us to think we are far better than we are, far more committed to the Lord than we are. God, revive us again. See, we have revival in the big sense in terms of regions and numbers and masses of people coming to the Lord. But the truth is that the revival starts in the heart of a believer. Revival starts through the proclamation of the word. God, revive us again. We've seen your faithfulness. We've seen it in our lives. We've seen it in the lives of others. We've seen it in the history of God's covenant people. The whole of redemptive history cries out with it. God is faithful. God, revive us again. And if you are here this morning and you know That your faith in Jesus is not once what it was. That your focus on the Lord Jesus isn't once what it was. If you know that you have and you are backsliding. If you know that there is an apathy or an indifference to the Lord in your soul. If you know fine well that you've taken your eyes off the Lord Jesus. That your life isn't one that reflects the glory of the Lord like it should or you have a life that you know is steeped in sin that maybe nobody else even knows about. I think verse six is a place for us to start. Lord, please would you revive my soul that I might rejoice in you. You see, the consequence of a revived soul is conviction and repentance. We'll come to that. The the, the hymn we opened with as we sat, thank you for the worship team for putting that together for us at short notice. It is a wonderful hymn that I love that we're gonna sing after this sermon, but we read, Revive thy work, O Lord, exalt thy precious name, and may thy love in every heart be kindled to a flame. Beautiful hymn. Verses seven and eight, show us your steadfast love, O Lord. And grant us your salvation. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak. For he will speak peace to his people to his saints. But let them not turn back to folly. Show us your steadfast love again, God. Grant us your salvation. If only the psalmist knew. If only the psalmist knew what was to come. That the steadfast love of God would be shown manifest in human nature in all its fullness and his name was Jesus. And he will speak peace to his people, his saints. There will not be peace for all humanity, but there will be peace for his people. Do not turn back to folly. Do not turn back to the ways in which you have been saved from. Do not let us turn back and look back at those sinful ways we want new. We want new. God is this faithful, sovereign restorer. God is the reviver of a distanced soul. God is steadfast love manifest to us in Jesus Thirdly will come, the righteousness of God imparted. I want to read again, just verses nine to the end. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. You see, the, the response to this restoration and this revival that we see is holiness. What we see is a, a, a people marked different. Just salvation is near to those who fear God. Those who have this this fear of God in the sense of the way that a child to to their father would fear them because of the the respect that they have for them, for the desire they have not to disobey them, to look to them, because it is marked with the greatest of respect. And I think that this healthy fear of the law that the soul that knows Jesus does two things. It leads us to repentance and it deepens our concern for holiness. We complicate things a lot. We make repentance so difficult and so stubborn, don't we? We're so stubborn and we're so set in our ways that we forget the simplest of truths. That we might come to the Lord That we might come to God Almighty through Christ Jesus just as we did when we first believed. And again there we will receive the loving embrace of God. Why do we make it so difficult? Why do we make it so difficult to come to the Lord in repentance unlike the first day we came to know Him? It seemed so easy back then. It seemed so easy to give over as we were convicted by the truth. As you reflect on the day when you came to saving faith in the Lord Jesus. That there was just... Surrender, wasn't there? It was surrender and saying, God, I want to live my life and I want to follow you. I recognize who you are, what you have done. I recognize the Lord Jesus that there is no way that I might be restored to God yet except through you. But man, we're stubborn and we make that stuff hard. And I think one of the ways we fight against this is we remember. We remember God's work, again, both in the Scriptures and in our lives. We fight against this attitude, this stubbornness. We are so slow often to ask for repentance and to offer forgiveness. But this call, this message of God's salvation, of His steadfast love, of His faithfulness and His righteousness and the peace that is extended for us is a call to holiness. God called his, calls His people to obedience. And it was their disobedience that landed them so often in so much trouble. We know, or I hope you know, or you know now, that our obedience is not because we are saved by the law, because we are saved and we are redeemed by grace, but, but our obedience is in response to that God that has saved us. But yet we, we so often miss the importance of obedience and holiness. And I think we do that because we're really scared of words like legalism and being legalistic, I think we have, in our generation, such a great desire to push boundaries. I think we don't want to come across as too judgmental. So we avoid labeling certain behaviors as ungodly. And we just don't really like words like duty and responsibility and effort when it comes to faith. They seem to go against what we believe. This this, this grace is free. So why do I have to do anything? I urge you to read the wonderful book A Hole in Our Holiness by Kevin DeYoung. It is a fabulous book and I want to pull a couple of quotes from it that, that, that really hit home as I, as I reread this recently. But it says, it sounds really spiritual to say God is interested in a relationship but not in rules. But it's not biblical. From top to bottom, the Bible is full of commands. They aren't meant to stifle a relationship with God but to protect it, seal it and define it. And then he goes on to say, Christ justifies no one whom he does not also sanctify. We don't obey to be redeemed by God. We obey because we are redeemed. Our obedience and our holiness is in response to the saving work of our God. Friends, you are set apart. You are set apart for a purpose that is far greater than anything you will ever find in earthly things. You are set apart to know God and enjoy Him forever. You are set apart in this world as salt and as light. Our holiness isn't optional. And this must be our response to this holy God through His Son, whom He offers salvation. That we present ourselves as living sacrifices to him. We should long to see revival in our land. But before we get there, we should long to see revival in our church. And long before we get there, we should long to see revival in our own heart. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. Loving, faithful, righteous God. And through the sending of his son, the divine justice of God, now satisfied by the great atonement. That saviour that hung on a tree in our place. That greatest example. Christ, the way, the truth, and the life sprang up from the earth when he took on that nature upon him. Took our nature upon him. And God's righteousness, his divine justice looked upon him and he was well pleased and satisfied. Through Christ, we sinners who are now pardoned, are called to this life of holiness, are called to this life of fruitfulness that lives in response to all that God has done for us. We find our feet set in the ways of his steps, and we can be sure that God's righteousness goes before us and is a sure guide, both as we meet with God and as we seek to follow him and live a life that is worthy of which we have been called. Before we sing and then break bread together, let's pray. God, you are awesome. You are majestic. You are holy. You are the sovereign one who is capable of all things. You and you alone are the ultimate restorer, reviver, giver of steadfast and faithful love. Lord, would you humble us? Would you humble us again to come before you on our knees, exalting Christ as Lord, remembering all the good things that you have given us, that we, Lord, might live lives as those who are set apart, of those that you have called to obedience and to holiness. Amen.
1: Let's stand before we come into the of communion and sing that song over by, by work the oh Lord. Let's stand here.
0: as we come for a moment to ponder the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus, as we gather together and as we take these simple elements that you will find in these cups, this bread and this wine, I invite you, if you know and love love the Lord Jesus, to partake. If you don't know the Lord Jesus as your Savior, please let the elements pass you by. Use this as an opportunity to observe and to reflect. I want to read a couple of verses from Luke 22, and from verses 7 and 8, and then 14 to 20. We read, Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go, prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. And then we read the Lord Jesus' institution from verse 14. And when they were came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover feast with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup and when he'd given thanks, he said, take this and divide it amongst yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread and when he given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, he took that cup after they had eaten, saying this cup that is poured for you is the new covenant in my blood. We've discovered this year in our, in our studies in the gospel of John that a lot of what the Lord Jesus would say just went right over the heads of his disciples. They either couldn't believe it, they they, they just didn't understand. And that's what we find, I think, here in verse 7. There's such rich symbolism that on the day when a Passover lamb was to be sacrificed, that perfect, spotless, unblemished lamb was to be sacrificed, Here was the one who would take the place of that lamb. Here is the one, the eternal lamb of God, sacrifice for our sins. We've looked at the importance of remembering this morning. We've looked at the importance of remembering what God has done in our lives and what God has done in the scriptures. And this is plainly and simply where we are asked by the Lord Jesus to remember. To remember his death and his resurrection until he would come. For our sake, he made him who knew no sin. He made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God.